The following has been brought to you by SJP World Media. You people, you know who I am. But you don't know why I'm here. This is where the big boys play, huh? Look at the adjective. Play. Go at it live on WCW Monday Nitro, where the big boys play every Monday night at 8 on TNT. Hello and welcome to Nitro Nights, a WCW Look Back podcast proudly brought to you by the SJP World Media Network. I am Sai, and joining me as always is the wrestling encyclopedia himself, Scottish Danny. How are you, my friend? Very well this week, mate. How's yourself? Pretty good, pretty good. I am sat, uh, well, for those who uh, saw Chain Wrestling this week or listened to the audio version will be aware, but I'm sat now recording in my new little podcast station that I've built in the bedroom We've had the move around at home. I've got a little bit more room, so I've got a proper desk, not just a plank of wood nailed to the wall. And um, I've got—I've actually got room, Danny. I've yeah. got room. When I recorded chain wrestling this week, I've got so much room. I lost my notes and then lost my phone because I've got that much space. I don't know what to do with it. It's insane. <laughs> it is, mate. I thought that um, CM Punk teddy bear had stolen it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, big Bob. Yeah, that bear is huge, man. It's so big. It, if you pick it up. Uh, and hold it by its head so its feet touches its, touches the floor. It's legit five foot tall. Wow. And it's wearing one of my old T-shirts on, like, <laughs> on when we did chain wrestling. It's a massive... Uh, but it's my daughter, whose bear it is, yeah. uh, it, she puts it on her bed, and it kind of acts like a gaming chair for her. She'll sit on its lap and lean... It's that big that she can sit in the bear to play her PlayStation. It's huge. <laughs> hey, oh, that saved some money, hasn't it? <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, it does. I'll have to bear that in mind. Maybe I'll get another version of Big Bob the Teddy to sit on, sit myself when I'm recording. It's probably going to be more comfortable than the chair I got, but there yeah. we go. This week on Nitro Nights, we are looking at the episode of Monday Nitro that was first broadcast on the 4th of November, 1996, and it came to us live that evening from Grand Rapids, Michigan. Uh, in the TV ratings, Nitro received a 3.4 that particular Monday night in comparison to Monday Night Raw's 2.3. Now, very uh, if you combine the numbers, very similar to what was uh, the sort of collective last week watching wrestling on the monday night the same amount of people give or take a, a select handful but there's a point to swing here a point to swing in favor of monday night raw so nitro has lost a few viewers and raw has gained a few viewers but we still overall have the same number of people still watching wrestling at this point that night on monday night raw 
I'm going to run through now, uh, Danny, as I always do, the results from Monday Night Raw. And I'm going to take your opinion on just the results and who was wrestling before I talk about what was more of a dominant thing on that episode of Raw. So we have Goldust uh, taking on the Stalker. Yo, bloody, bloody love Barry Windham. That went to a double disqualification. And for some reason at ringside, we had Marlena, Triple H, Mr. Perfect, Crush, Clarence Mason, Mark Miro, Sable, Rocky Maivia, and Mark Henry. No idea what was going on there. The Sultan with Bob Backlund and the Iron Sheik defeated Alex Porto. That, that sounds horrific. Absolutely terrible. And the main event, this is your main event when it comes to the wrestling aspect of the show. Fake Razor, accompanied to the ring by Fake Diesel, defeated Mark Miro with Sable. Does that sound like a wrestling show that you'd want to watch, Danny? Absolutely not, mate. (laughs) (laughs) No. Uh, Very, very thin on the ground when it comes to actual wrestling content. However, this particular edition of Monday Night Raw is more famous for a, a, a segment or a show running theme that occurred away from the arena. This was the episode of Monday Night Raw that quite famously is now referred to as Pillman's Got a Gun with Brian Pillman at his house with his wife and Steve Austin breaking in. And uh, Kevin Kelly is there doing a live feed on the big screen and so on. Um, have you seen Pillman's Got a Gun, Danny? I've only seen brief um, highlights of it off of WWE DVDs, but never the full thing. But um, Interesting. I know okay. very important moment in Raw. Yeah, I mean, we're getting, I mean, don't get me wrong. It's a gun on TV. It's, it's bloody ridiculous. It really is. But... I mean, as far as wrestling shows go, you look at the you look at who was on screen for Raw that night, the likes of the Sultan and all that nonsense. Then you compare it to what they're trying to do with Pillman and Austin. That's a lot edgier. Uh, I mean, it, it's ludicrous. Of course, it is. You've got a man breaking into somebody else's house and one of them's wielding a gun. It's absolutely ridiculous when it comes to wrestling programming. But it's not. It's not Doink the Clown. It's not cartoon nonsense. It's not a guy who pretends to be a plumber or a dustbin man. So you can see a slight change in direction here, can't you? Yeah, absolutely, mate. And I, I believe um, Stone Cold threw one of um, Brian Pillman's friends in a paddling pool as well, didn't he? Yeah, I mean, it's it's well worth going out uh, to watch that episode of Raw, to be honest. And because you say you've seen it on uh, highlights packages and DVDs and so on. If you're actually similar to how we're doing with, with Nitro, I suppose, if you're actually watching the whole story as opposed to clips and, and highlights, it, it, is diff, it is different when you take it in full context of the episode. And it does, even though it's ridiculous and st- it's pretty stupid as, as a, an aspect of a wrestling television show, you know, br- you know, breaking and entering and guns and all sorts, but it does kind of suck you in. So it's, I, I'd recommend just for the sake of, uh, to coin a phrase from our good buddy Total Stevo, your wrestling history, I suppose, yeah. it's worth watching that that episode of Raw in its entirety, just to sort of experience it as a whole. Because you've got this going on with Austin and Pillman, and then you've got the fucking Sultan wrestling and stuff like that. So it's it's a bit of a weird one, but there we go. Yeah, <laughs> that was Monday Night Raw. Before we get into Monday Nitro, however, we need to have a little look about what happened over the weekend. And we turn to our good buddy, the Saturday Night Expert, Scottish Danny. WCW Saturday Night is brought to you by me, Scottish Danny. Danny, what have you got for us? 
a very tag team heavy week this week, Si, for Saturday night, because okay. the opener we had Psychosis and Juventud Guerrero defeating Marcus Alexander Bagwell and Scotty Riggs. Okay. We yeah, we also <laughs> had um the WCW television champion Lord Stephen Regal defeating Jim Duggan via disqualification. Right. We had uh, Chris Benoit defeating Hugh Morris. And we had the Cruiserweight champion, Dean Malenko, defeating Rey Mysterio Jr. And then probably another classic that would have been. Yeah, well, you'd imagine so with those two. I, I can't imagine them ever having a bad match. No. no. And uh, in our main event, we had Lex Luger defeating somebody called Max. Do you remember Max? Uh, have we seen him? Oh, okay. Um, we have. Uh, I think he was like... Um, a big a big muscle band guy that stood in the background whilst other people I think we have seen him yeah but he's very much Saturday night fodder um, oh, yeah. we're going back to like <laughs> 95 I think was the time we'd have seen him um, yeah not linked with the Dungeon of Doom but around that whole Dungeon of Doom silliness and, and that kind of aspect so yeah it does ring a bell I could be getting the, that completely wrong it could be somebody else but that does kind of ring a bell to me to be honest yeah yeah so an interesting week. <laughs> yeah, there we go. There we go. Um, what also uh, I find interesting is a couple of things that go on on this episode of Nitro, which again just makes me think, come on, WCW, sort it out. Uh, one is at the very beginning of the episode, and one is at the very end. And I'll cover them both with you now. Um, the intro to Nitro, that iconic uh, shot of the buildings and the fire and the music and so on, still loads of Hulk Hogan in the red and yellow. Why has this not been fixed yet? No idea, mate, but it's definitely a glaring um, difference, isn't it, compared to Hollywood Hogan? Yeah, oh, without a doubt, without a doubt. And secondly, at the end of the show, when we see you know, Mr. Hogan himself, the title belt, the big gold belt, still says the name Giant on it. Wow. What, what are they doing? <laughs> That's been a bugbear of this show since we started, hasn't it? <laughs> drives me batty, mate. It absolutely drives me insane. It's just attention to detail and, and in a way, just putting a bit of bloody effort in, you know? Yeah, definitely. But we'll see how long it'll take for them to change that. <laughs> mm, yeah, indeed. The show begins with... Well, plenty of people not in the ring. We have Sting in the rafters. He is staring down and uh, surveying what is happening in front of him. We have the giant, Ted DiBiase and Vincent sat in the crowd. And then we have uh, Tony Schiavone and Larry Zabisco providing the commentary for the first hour, as they normally do. But they're not in their usual place of the little tiny afterthought table at ringside they're sat in the posh seats normally uh, you know put aside for eric bischoff and his mates no but tony gets to uh come out of the slums this week and sit in the posh seats danny yeah he's been upgraded and it was really actually a nice change because i mean we've seen tony and um larry spisco open the show um for weeks now and they've just been stood there and then when you get a look at that table it's quite depressing isn't it <laughs> it really is it really is oh dear um whilst the reason we have this by the way the reason tony shivani and Larry visco are in the uh, i suppose the, the proper commentary desk i guess is because eric bischoff is not here this week bischoff is out working trying to get roddy piper 
and Hulk Hogan signed, trying to get the match down on paper, names to contract, and, uh, you know, head us in the right direction to get the match that we're told the whole wrestling world wants to see. So there we go. He's working very hard for our benefit, apparently, Danny. Yes, he is. The match of the decades. <laughs> yeah, which decade? The 70s? I don't know. But um, <laughs> we're also told as well by Tony Schiavone that we have a tournament beginning this evening that is also going to have matches taking place on Saturday night and so on. And it's for the, not, not the Divas, not the Women's, it's for the Ladies' Championship. And we have a title belt on the commentary desk for everyone to see. And um, this, this episode of Nitro is a little bit different for me from a personal aspect because in all the time we've been doing Nitro Nights now, and we're we're fast approaching our ATF episode, which is you know fantastic. My wife has seen bits and bobs with me as I'm watching back and, and watching Nitro, and she saw a bit of the pay per view recently and so on. This episode of Nitro, my wife actually sat and watched pretty much the whole thing with me, mm-hmm. so that was quite interesting getting her reactions to stuff we saw and questions that she'd ask because she can remember watching WCW back in the day and has memories of certain storylines and certain wrestlers but similar to us I guess Danny when we're running through it not the context of the weekly TV so it's quite interesting getting her viewpoint but I turned to my wife here and said you know what I know they had a women's title and I know it didn't last long because you know they only signed one women's wrestler I mean (laughs) they signed Medusa Who's she going to wrestle? You've got one woman, you know, you need two to have a match. But anyway, I remember looking at that title and thinking, I'm not sure I've ever seen that before. Mm, Yeah, pretty much the same. Um, It's like the, there's championships when you think of WCW that are synonymous, like the US championship and the world championship. But this for me was, I've never seen this in my life. This and the WCW Hardcore Championship are two that just don't form a picture straight away in my mind. Mm. Yeah, I mean, don't get me wrong. I must have. I must have seen this before because I've seen all of this before. You know, I know who wins the tournament. Uh, I know what happens with regards to that championship in that division. So I must have seen this title belt before. But I'm looking at it and I'm like, nope, drawing a blank here. Imagine, Sai, if they brought out the WWF Women's Championship that was thrown in the bin. <laughs> <laughs> Just with a bit of masking tape over it that says WCW or something. Or spray painted like the NWO paper yeah. uh, title. Yeah. <laughs> uh, our opening contest is somebody who I'm guessing people would have seen a lot of on Saturday night this week. Marcus Bagwell. And he is in singles action here, taking on Brad Armstrong. And... There's a lot of this on this episode of Nitro for me. The feel of where we're going with the likes of DDP and the NWO and even Luger and Sting and so on. And also a great feeling of where we've been going back into 95 and and previous with Marcus Bagwell in this current guise. The American males feel quite outdated to me. Brad Armstrong, as great a wrestler and as great a worker as he is, he's coming out in what looks like Lex Luger's jacket from 1993 on the Lex Express. (laughs) Everything about the presentation of Brad Armstrong and Marcus Bagwell here doesn't feel trail end 96, edgy NWO WCW era. It feels 95, 94, 93-ish to me. Yeah, yeah, it really does. Yeah, it's a shame. Um, I mean, this match, I suppose, again, this is going to be a running theme for this episode of Nitro Nights, really. This match was just kind of there. 
it was decent enough, but it wasn't spectacular. Uh, we we get some some nice spots. I mean, there's a there's an impressive head scissors by Bagwell. Um, there's lots of arm drags and headlock takeovers from from Brad Armstrong before it breaks down into a bit of a brawl and they start throwing punches. Um, Bagwell hits a quite impressive flying clothesline over the top rope. Uh, and then a crossbody over the top rope to the floor, which again was quite impressive because Bagwell's not a small guy, let's be honest. Yeah. And then both guys, we have the spot where both guys run the ropes and they go for a crossbody block at the same time. Yeah. How this almighty splat in the middle of the ring. Bagwell covers Armstrong and wins the match. And like I said, it was, it was decent enough. But it was, it's just kind of there. There's nothing really, if I, if I hadn't made a few notes, there's nothing really from this match that I would, that stands out for me to remember and talk about, Danny. What, what did you think? I thought um, Bagwell and Brad Armstrong must be pissed off because halfway during the match, the Giant and Ted DiBiase are shown just leaving because they don't want to watch the match. <laughs> No, but I was actually really impressed with the finish because it's not it's not every day you see a finish like that with a hard cross body to, to actually get the pin. So, um, but I can see your point as well, where like we've got really little emotional investment in both guys, but um, I think it was just kind of there to just warm the crowd up for um, the rest of the evening. Yeah, yeah, I get yeah. I I, I agree with you with regards to the finish. It's nice in that I think wrestling fans in general have been programmed to know that the finish will happen with a finishing move more often than not. Yeah. Whereas I think sometimes that takes away the drama from near falls or potentially the story that some wrestlers try and tell in the ring. Uh, you look at say, we'll use John Cena just as an example, purely because he's the name that pops in my head. Cena's not going to win a match like the blue. No. You know, or, or if he does, it's very incredibly rare. He's going to hit the AA. He's going to put on that weak as shit STF and win by submission. So any other time Cena does something, we've been conditioned to know it's going to be a two count. Now, what I like about this particular episode of Nitro, barring the DDP match, we kind of have each finish being out the blue no one uses a finishing move again it's barring the ddp contest we'll talk about in a moment the finishes to all of these matches to, to, to memory that i you know trying to recall now they come out of the blue they, they they're not straight after a finisher or straight after a, a, a sort of strong move that you would expect to finish the match which again i like because it's it's supposed to be a sporting contest and you go to say boxing or ufc or where i'm not really a mma expert i don't know a great deal about it but it, okay we use boxing as an example that's probably better we know that say a particular boxer might have a really really powerful right hook yeah it doesn't mean that every fight he has is going to finish with a powerful right hook he may hit an uppercut with his left hand and that's enough to knock the, knock the guy out anyway so you know it can finish at any time to me pro wrestling the beauty of pro wrestling is that it's it's an art form and it's trying to portray this as a real sporting contest. And if you're conditioning your fans and your viewers to, to think that it's not going to finish until you see the tombstone or until you see the Hogan leg drop back in the 80s or whatever, you're going to miss out on the drama in the build-up to those moments with other near falls. So seeing this here, where no match barring DDPs really finishes with a finishing move, I think really 
works well going forward if they keep this sort of thing up. Does that make sense? Have I explained myself properly there? Yeah, it really does, mate. And it's like, um, it makes it more shocking when somebody, just as you were saying earlier, when, like, say, Undertaker hits a tombstone or something after years of it being protected and then somebody kicks out and it's like, oh, wow, I didn't see that coming. So this in reverse works the same way. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I, I go back to WrestleMania 3. Randy Savage, Ricky Steamboat. That match is one of the greatest WrestleMania matches, one of the greatest intercontinental title matches of all time. And if you watch it, for me, part of the psychology of that match, part of what makes that match fantastic is that they're genuinely trying to win the match. They're not they're not hitting move after move. And then a big pet hate of mine is somebody hits a really impressive, um, impressive move, or it was a super kick, or um, some kind of uh, tiger driver, or whatever these 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 flashy moves that everyone does nowadays. God, I sound old, don't I? But you know what I mean. Um, <clears throat> it's and then they pick them up. That that's a real bugbear of mine. It's like don't pick them up just to go on to the next spot try and pin them. And if they kick out a two, they kick out a two. At least it shows we're trying to win the match. Steamboat and Savage was was just absolutely, you know, so good. So, so good. Because it was regular pinfall attempts. Every move was followed by a pinfall, followed by a pinfall, followed by another attempt, another attempt, another attempt. And eventually won with an inside cradle. So that worked, you know, worked for me. And I think the more we see of that, the better it is for pro wrestling for being taken... I don't want to say seriously as a real sport because that's not the right phrase in the slightest, but it should be, it should feel like yeah, the suspension of disbelief, I guess. You shouldn't be sat there waiting for, you know, John Cena to hit the AA. It could finish at any point. That's kind of the point I'm getting at, I suppose. No, totally, mate. Okay. I mean, ultimately, uh, like I said, we have Bagwell winning the match. And what follows is the DDP contest I was referencing quite a bit in that in that match there. DDP is facing Ice Train. And this made me smile when Ice Train came out because I thought, I bet Danny likes seeing this guy. We had seen him for a couple of weeks, you yeah. know? Yeah, I really did. Um, especially when you heard that music, I immediately remembered who it was. So, yeah, big, big props to Dovstubby for bringing him back on. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, this is, uh, we've got Nick Patrick as the referee, first of all. The outsiders are in the crowd. Again, they're watching Diamond Dallas Page. So it's interesting to see where we're heading with that, because the NWO, we're told, are actively recruiting. So they obviously see something in Page, I'm assuming. The match itself is relatively punchy, kicky. But the power of Ice Train kind of gets him the advantage in places before a netbreaker by Diamond Dallas Page and, and an attempted cover. And Ice Train kicks out, causing DDP to land on Nick Patrick, hurting him, as is the way at the moment with Nick Patrick and all his nonsense. Uh, and whilst all this is going on, the Outsiders attack Ice Train and beat the piss out of him, basically, with a title belt. And some of those shots from Scott Hall were vicious. Yeah. Nick Patrick doesn't see. Uh, eventually, when Ice Train sort of regains himself and is distracted by the outsiders. He turns around just to straight away eat a diamond cutter and the match is over. Page isn't really aware of what's happened here. It's quite an interesting development we're getting here. What did you think of this match? What did you think about seeing Ice Train again? And all the NWO stuff as well, Danny. What are your thoughts on this one? I think a big thumbs down for the NWO stuff, Sai, because 
it, not to the NWO or DDP, but I think Ice Train should have sold those belt shots a little better because he kind of just got up. And I know, oh, yeah, adrenaline and stuff like that, but he was just being down by two giant guys with belts. And the fact yeah. that he got up and just ate the diamond cutter, I was like, I was kind of waiting for him to get up after the diamond cutter as well. <laughs> <laughs> no, in all seriousness, it was it was a decent match, and um, I do hope to see Ice Train a, a bit more. But um, it's just continuing the DDP story, isn't it? Is he with the NWO or isn't he? So that's a very interesting question. Yeah, and we're getting each week we're getting closer and closer to the DDP that I remember and I loved. The gimmicks are getting less and less, or maybe not less in number, but less dominant when when you look at Paige, I suppose. Yeah, and um, Larry Sabisco is just accusing DDP of being in the NWO already as well, so that's quite funny. <laughs> yeah, he, he always jumps to conclusions, doesn't he, old Larry? Um, <laughs> uh, what follows that is yet another match. We're getting match after match after match here in the first hour. Yeah. Uh, Scotty Riggs, the other half of the American Males, is taking on Dean Malenko here. And we're told Dean Malenko or Scotty Riggs, if he beats the Cruiserweight Champion, will be facing Rey Mysterio at the weekend. And then whoever wins that will go on to face Psychosis at the pay per view, unless somebody else beats somebody else in the weeks building up. And then they might get beat by somebody else. And I don't really know what they were trying to tell me here, Danny, to be honest. I think the best thing about this match was the fact that WCW spent double the pyro money on the American males because both of them had separate entrances with all the pyro, with all the lighting. Yeah. I mean, we've got, we're three matches in. I don't need to hear the American males theme tune twice in the first 30 minutes. No. You know, it's not necessary. You can find somebody else to work one of these matches, surely. You know, it's... <laughs> But it was a quite a lengthy match, wasn't it? Yeah, but oddly, I'd, I've not got much in front of me about it. I think it's kind of dominated by Six, who who is watching, because obviously he, he's interested in the Cruiserweight title himself. Um, I know Scotty Riggs gets a lot in here. Yeah. You know, we, we see some some uh, flying drop kicks and, and some flying clotheslines and all that sort of stuff. Plenty of moves uh, to the outside as well. And then he kind of falls from the top rope at one point. And does Bagwell put him back in the ring? Yeah. And it's a very interesting um, comment by uh, Larry Sabisco's kind of teasing dissension between the two. Um, I don't know if you caught on to that side. Mm. Yeah, I think we are heading to a split potentially, aren't we? Which is going to be intriguing. And I think kind of due as well. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think they, they've kind of outstayed their welcome with this gimmick now. I mean, I've got no problems with them being a tag team, but the whole American males, the way they dress, the music, everything, it feels incredibly dated to me. It really does. It, it feels like a Saturday night gimmick. <laughs> uh, yeah, there you go. Perfect. Exactly. Exactly. Um, Dean Malenko wins with a cradle as Bagwell sends Riggs back into the ring. And, and that's kind of it for that one. Is there anything else you want to touch upon with that, Danny? Other than um, Dean Malenko kind of working circles around Scotty Riggs, um, no disrespect to him, but it was like Dean, there was no doubt who was winning this match, was there? Yeah. Yeah. If Scotty Riggs had walked out with a cruiserweight title, I'd have been really pissed. <laughs> <You know? laughs> uh, we have a recap following this 
of last week with Benoit winning his match with help from uh, Mongo McMichael and the briefcase and so on. Apparently, Eddie Guerrero is now injured because he took the briefcase to the ribs. So Chris Benoit is going to wrestle this evening and he is taking on Hector Guerrero. So as soon as he came out, I was like, whoa, okay, this is interesting. Um, uh, Have you seen much of Hector Guerrero? I was thinking about it, and the only time I remember seeing him, he was um, TNA's um, head uh, announcer for the Spanish broadcast team, but he was involved in an angle where he wrestled his final match in um, 2008 on a random Impact episode that I'm going to dig out this week. But when he walked through the um, staging area site, I thought this was Eddie Guerrero for a second. Oh, yeah, you can definitely tell they're related, can't you? Yeah, yeah, he, he was, looked so much like him. And when you see um, Hector, uh, pictures of Hector Guerrero in later years, through the 2000s, you just think this is what Eddie Guerrero would have looked like if he had reached his 50s. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, Hector Guerrero as well, you'll probably know from Survivor Series way back when he played the role of the gobbledygooker. Yes, yeah. So that might be more sort of what people of a certain age remember him as being, which is a shame because the guy's incredibly talented, I think. And he showed it here in this match, I think, I think, Danny. Absolutely did, mate. This was my favourite match of the entire night. Um, it was, yeah, it was really good. And I do want to see more Hector Guerrero on that try. Yeah, maybe lose the cape, though. I'm not quite sure what that was about. <laughs> Uh, it's better than the uh, gobbledygooker, isn't it? <laughs> well, that's true. That's true. <laughs> um, the match is interrupted earlier. Well, I say interrupted. Our viewing is interrupted. The match carries on with a picture-in-picture effort. And Jimmy Hart and Kevin Sullivan are talking about Benoit and how they're going to meet in, I think, Baltimore, at what they said at one point. They're going to have a match in, in Baltimore in, in yeah. an upcoming uh, TV taping. And there's and- references again to women, but quite vague references, isn't there? Yeah, yeah, and they're going to be wrestling each other at the pay-per-view as well. So that's interesting. Okay, okay. Um, yeah, I mean, Hector Guerrero, I think, looked decent. He worked the shoulder a great deal. Um, we get another interruption with a, an ad break, and then another interruption because we have an NWO t-shirt advert, uh, and then another in- interruption, another distraction, when we go to hour two of Nitro, so all the fireworks and so on go off. Uh, Tony Schiavone is allowed to stay this week because Bischoff's not there, and he is joined by Mike Tanay and Bobby Heenan. We come back to the ring, and Woman then forms a distraction for Benoit to win with his feet on the ropes. Um, a lot going on to almost take our eyes off the match, but at the same time, there was a lot going on in the match that was that was pretty bloody good, Danny, wasn't it? There really was, mate, and I love the fact that Hector Guerrero was applying a hold at one point, and I was, think, I was thinking to myself, I've never seen that hold before, but then Tony Schiavone named it, it was called the Kiwi Roll. Um, I had never seen that move before. Did you enjoy that, Si? Yeah, it was a great spot, wasn't it? It was a great spot. Yeah. And, uh, there were certain things he did. I mean, trying to remove the, the bandages from Benoit's shoulder whilst constantly working on the shoulder with different holds and so on. Again, it comes back to the storytelling uh, and, and it making sense. If you are in a a wrestling match, uh, whatever, and you know somebody, or we'll come back to boxing again. If you're fighting someone, it's a boxing match or whatever, you see the guys on the TV and they've got an eye that's swollen or a cut above the eye, you keep working that spot. So if you've got somebody who's got an injury, you keep working that spot. 
it baffles the crap out of me when you'd see somebody uh, and, and WWE are, are guilty of this for a long time, especially in the sort of 2010s era. I remember seeing numerous matches where people would have their knee taped up. So their opponent would then work the arm just because it suited their finish <laughs> or somebody would have their ribs taped up, but they would work the leg because they wanted to apply a figure four or something just because it suited their finish from, from a storytelling standpoint and from a common sense standpoint. That literally makes no sense. You've mm. got a target on a guy. You should be working that, that spot, shouldn't you? Yeah, absolutely, mate. And I did also notice that um, Hector Guerrero was working Chris Benoit's midsection as well, and um, as well as his shoulder. So I thought that was quite good as well. Yeah, yeah, there we go. After the match, we have a recap of the Jeff Jarrett stuff with the Giant from last week's Nitro. And then Jeff Jarrett himself is there, and he is talking with Mike Tanay and the Four Horsemen are present as well. Woman and Deborah and Mongo and so on. And Mongo kind of leads this mindset of the, the Four Horsemen. You know, there's there's four of us. We don't know who this guy Jarrett is or what he's doing because Flair and Arn are obviously not present at the moment. They're both out injured. And Mongo and Benoit are not happy. With JJ working along, sorry, JJ, Jeff Jarrett working alongside the four horsemen. They constantly reference there being only four of them. They don't see why this guy is here. And they all, and they're, they're quite disappointed with the fact that he's linked to them, I think, isn't he? Yeah, and I think I was more disappointed in the fact that Jeff Jarrett, what the hell was he wearing? So. <laughs> oh, that was a look, wasn't it? I mean, you got the, you got the standard mid 90s Jarrett. It's almost like a mullet, but with a side parting at the same time. It's quite a haircut. And then you've got this. He's wearing white trousers with a sparkly gold waistcoat. <laughs> he looked like the richest waiter in the world. Yes. You know, it's like, <laughs> it was just absolute nonsense, wasn't it? It was, mate. But just to get back to what you were saying, um, yeah, you could definitely see a story developing here where Jeff Jarrett is... Um, sort of mentor, mentored by Ric Flair or accept, brought into the group, but the rest of the group are not accepting Jeff Jarrett at all, are they? No. No, that's it. So, interesting. Got to keep your, our eyes upon that. Uh, the horsemen depart, leaving Jarrett, and he then has uh, a little bit of interview time, m- microphone time, whatever, himself with Mike Tanay. And he's talking about WCW needing leadership. And he says he backs Ric Flair, but obviously Flair's not here at the moment. Um, it, he says he would do it himself and then he starts talking about Sting and Sting is back in the crowd watching this and Sting's face paint I thought was really intriguing because we, we're, we've got the proper black and white look now, we're into proper crow era Sting his hair is much shorter than it will inevitably become with the character but he's got these sort of downturns painted on his mouth that make him look a little bit like a sad clown and I think it's as comical as it may well be to describe that way it really works for this sulky, you know, hanging around in the shadows version of Sting, I think. Oh, yeah, big time, mate. And, I mean, his facial, his body language throughout this entire night, it was like, wow, he's saying so much without even opening his mouth. Mm. Yeah, and the commentary team, I think, do really well in adding... Adding words to what we're seeing, effectively adding a soundtrack to the to the visions that we're, we're we're having a pop up on our screen. In that, Sting's not saying or doing much, of course, 
well, he's not saying anything, of course, but he's not doing much. But there, if there's any grey area with regards to what they're trying to accomplish with Sting and the body language and how he's reacting to things, the commentary team, I think, do really well in filling in those blanks. Yeah, yeah. Uh, especially when he leaves. I think the way they talk about him sort of walking off at certain times works well, Danny. Yeah, it really does, mate. And it's just, you just want to find out what's going to happen next with Sting. Where is it going to go? Mm, exactly. Exactly. And again, we also get Bobby Heenan and uh, Larry Zabisco a great deal as well, saying about how he's wearing black and white. And I think Heenan even at one point lists off, he used to wear bright yellow, bright blue, greens, and paint his face. But look at him now, he's wearing black and white. I think we know what he's doing. Yeah. You know, it's it's adding to this, there's so many layers to, to what's going on with Sting, without Sting having to actually do anything himself. Really clever, really clever storytelling, really clever writing, I think. It absolutely is, mate, and I just can't wait to see what he does next. Mm. Uh, Jeff Jarrett says, he basically has a pop at Sting, saying he's not going to be any good as a leader for WCW. He dropped the ball in the couple of occasions they needed him, and he turned his back on WCW, and at that point, Sting leaves again. So it's interesting to see how we get some people who are WCW, like Tony Schiavone, for example, on commentary, imploring Sting to get involved. Luger, the same. And then we get others going, no, no, he's turned his back on us. He's wearing black and white. It it, it sort of splits the camp, doesn't it? It really does, mate, yeah. Mm. After this, we get more Lee Marshall bullshit, the same as last week. Apparently, Lee Marshall is already in St. Petersburg, which is where they're heading next week. And he's talking about the wonderful time he's having there. And people are buying up tickets to see Nitro next week. And he can't wait for everyone to... I mean, how crap must this job be? If this is real, which we know it's not. We know he's backstage on a, on a, you know, on a microphone, on a, on a telephone, whatever, backstage. He's not in St. Petersburg. He's where they are now. Yeah, but just, yeah, there it is. <laughs> yeah, of course. But that, just, just for argument's sake, right? Kayfabe it, or whatever you want to say. Let's pretend that this Lee Marshall is actually doing what he's describing on the screen when we get the images of an arrow pointing at the location he's supposed to be in a map and then his little face in the corner with that bushy moustache holding a microphone and so on. How crap a job must that be? Because he's always one week ahead of where the action is. So he's just going to an empty arena and going, do you want to buy some tickets? Or, oh, you like WCW? Oh, okay, great. I'm going to tell people I've spoken to you. And then by the time everyone arrives and you have the big party that is Nitro and everyone enjoying themselves and so on, He's already fucked off to the next time. How crap a job is that? Very, mate. And especially because he's not well known yet as a character on television. So people wouldn't immediately recognize him either. <laughs> Do you know what? I didn't even think of that. Mm. Can you imagine that You know, he's just hanging around in a, in, a, in a cafe or a bar or just walking down the street in St. Petersburg, you know, seven days early? before Nitro arrives. And he's there with that dodgy jacket and that huge bushy mustache and the sunglasses as well. And then and there's just a young gang of young lads wearing WCW shirts. Maybe maybe someone's got a sting t shirt on, maybe someone's got an NWO top on. And they get this weird, over enthusiastic, you know, middle aged guy walk up to them and go, Hey, do you boys like WCW? I'm surprised he hasn't been arrested. <laughs> maybe in the future, so <laughs> Yeah, I'll have to keep an eye on that, mate. Um what follows this is our first first round match in the not the women's not the divas but the ladies WCW title tournament as we're told by Tony Schwanny and we have uh, again please excuse me if I butcher the pronunciation of any of these names but we have Reina Habuki 
Is that right, Danny? That's it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And she is taking on Medusa. And uh, yeah, we, we've we said on Nitro Nights in previous weeks how the women's uh, roster, I suppose, is incredibly weak. You've got Medusa, and then you've got Sherry, who's not even really a wrestler anymore at this point in her career. Medusa effectively has no one to wrestle. So the arrangement they have with Japanese companies and Sanyono and so on works to their advantage because they can bring in people like Bull Nakano and other Japanese wrestlers into the company to work uh, with Medusa. Yeah. But, okay, during this match, we have another wrestler come out called Zero, another ladies wrestler. She's accompanied by Sanyono, another Japanese ladies wrestler. We're told about other Japanese wrestlers who are taking part in this tournament. And then we have Medusa, the only lady contracted to WCW, coming out in the Stars and Stripes gear. I think it's fairly obvious who's winning this tournament, isn't it? Oh, big time, mate. As soon as Medusa's music that I haven't been able to find off of YouTube because I really like the the sound of her song here. But as soon as that song came on, I was like, well, we know who's winning this. But this whole match, before we get into it, so the whole thing, um, the highlight of it for me was Zero walking out because that just... I don't. I've never seen Zero before, but she had a look that just yes. was like, "Wow, I need to find out more about this woman now." Yeah, yeah. I also think as well, uh, Reina, Reina uh, Habuki. Yeah, her ring gear was spectacular, and she she could work. She was doing some impressive. We had some missile drop kicks. We had a Northern Light suplex with a neck bridge. We all this sort of stuff. Brilliant stuff from her. Medusa, I think. I don't want to. It's very difficult to talk about Medusa and not sound like I'm being critical because, but I'm one hundred percent not. This woman is a is, is groundbreaking in women's wrestling. She was doing things in. 90 well this is 96 for example but you go back 95 94 93 and then even earlier she was like wrestling in japan in the tokyo dome and all sorts of stuff probably got the match probably got 47 fucking stars from melt so i don't know but <laughs> she was doing stuff at that age uh, in that era sorry that was so far ahead of her time for a lady from america in comparison to what women's wrestling was in the states at this point and also would be for quite a while i mean you got to look across to the other station you look at the wwf they haven't got a women's champion there's no women's division in the wwf at this point and when they bring back more ladies to be part of the, their television programming and we've got sable and sunny on the station uh, on raw at the moment at this time in 96 they're not there for wrestling ability let's be honest and then when it gets more advanced into sort of the divas era and other ladies wrestlers arriving again they're not there for their wrestling ability so medusa in comparison to some of these japanese ladies does seem a little bit more limited a little bit more um uh, there's not as much to her her back catalog of moves or her forte in the ring i suppose as some of the japanese ladies that she's wrestling against yeah, but yeah. you put it into context of the time, and also what would come in the next five to ten years. She's way ahead of her time with regards to American ladies wrestling. I think, Danny. Absolutely, mate. Excellently said because you just said it perfectly with um, groundbreaking. Look what she's doing here. I very much doubt that 
if she wasn't, if Medusa wasn't here, we wouldn't have a ladies' championship that we're a tournament that we're having right now because the fact is, um, she left WWF because Vince McMahon just had no um, desire to continue the women's um, uh, division at all. And now it's taken her a bit of time, a better part of a year. But now we've got something like this. So, and it, I think a big part is because of her. Yeah. Yeah. Without a doubt. Without a doubt. Again, when she was the WWF uh, ladies champion, to be fair to them, they were doing something very similar to what WCW is doing here, just not on the same level. Here we've got a whole tournament set up for this championship with, with a lot of imports from Japan and so on. Medusa as the women's champion for the WWF. Yes, there was a tournament and so on, but when it went on to defend the championship, she was basically just wrestling Bull Nakano uh, yeah. on every pay-per-view. And they, they put on some great matches. They really did. Their, their match at WrestleMania 10 is not WrestleMania 10, so SummerSlam uh, 95, I think it is. I mean, people have to go look it up. I could be completely wrong with that. But their match at SummerSlam um, 95 Obviously, we saw Medusa versus Bull Nakano in WSW as well. But going back to that era is is really good as well. It's, it, I suppose, it's just the women's scene in in the United States in general, because on both sides of the coin, the WWF and WSW, each of them had a had a run with Medusa, and had to bring in imports for her to face because they didn't really have anyone of their own or anyone in the states that they could really sign and trust. No, no, certainly not. And um, but in a way, it's a good thing as well because even though we know who's winning these matches and Medusa's there, um, it does shine a spotlight on the like any uh, women that come out out from either Japan or Mexico or wherever this tournament will take us. So mm. it's all about highlights. Yeah, yeah. There you go. A highlight for me was Sonny Ono coming out with Zero, and he shouts into the camera that Medusa is full of peroxide and plastic. She reminds him of an American car. That that tickled me. That really yeah. made me laugh. You know? <laughs> he um, is brilliant. Eventually, Medusa wins with a German suplex and netbridge combo, which is, I think it's basically safe to say this is her finisher of, of the time. Um, but I quite enjoyed this. I thought this was a decent match. I thought it was hilarious, the irony of um, an American person who was like proud to be in the USA winning with a German suplex. <laughs> <laughs> wow, yeah, there you go. Uh, um, what followed is another example, I think, of how WCW is heading in the, the right direction with regards to going into 96, 97, 98, the edgy, reali more reality-based aspect of programming. And then it's still got some hangers on that don't seem to quite fit in anymore because we have um, M Wall Street make his entrance in his ill-fitting suit. And he's not VK Wall Street. He's not even Mike Wall Street anymore. He's just M Wall Street now, apparently. Yeah. Uh, and for some reason, he doesn't take his suit completely off. He Normally, he strips down to that singlet that's covered in those horrible garish gold dollar symbols. Here, he keeps his trousers and, and his his effectively his office shoes on so that was a weird look and he's taking on um cheesy generic babyface number 47 chris jericho he comes out to cheesy generic babyface music and shouts yeah come on yeah come on cheer for me at the crowd as often as he can uh but then when the bell rings you can see that jericho was going to be a star can you 
Oh, absolutely, mate. But this, um, I mean, I, I don't want to ruin it for you, but this match was the worst match of the night for me, um, plus combined to what we get after. But I think you're completely right about Wall Street. I'd like to see this character just end. Not um, Mike Rotunda himself, because he's an excellent wrestler. But mm. yeah, as soon as I heard his music, I was like, oh, God, really? <laughs> yeah. I, uh, if you're interested, Danny, you want to go back and check out some of Mike Rotunda, Mike Rotunda, we got called both, some of his work in the Varsity Club back in the mid-80s with Kevin Sullivan and so on on the old Starcades and Jim Crockett promotion events and his stuff tagging with Barry Windham in the WWF around WrestleMania 1 kind of time. Uh, this guy was so good. He was really incredibly underrated with how talented this guy was back in, back in those days. But yeah, there we go. Uh, Jericho's flying about all over the place before Wall Street eventually takes over and we get a, a headlock and a abdominal stretch spot, which seems to be his go-to in a lot of matches we've seen that i think um yeah. chris jericho hits a missile drop kick before eventually winning with a with a cradle kind of out of nowhere isn't it yeah it goes back to what you were saying earlier so like the the uh wins in this are just like booked where it's a surprise win but the absolute highlight of this match is um when tony shivani and um, bobby heenan are talking about alan sharp um Tony Schiavone describes Alan Sharp as a shyster. And I was thinking, shyster, IRS, put them together. That was Erwin I shyster. That's it. (laughs) Clever. (laughs) What follows, though, is another segment with Nick Patrick and his attorney. Um, Jericho is there again. Because Jericho is very much, I suppose, really voicing his opinion against Nick Patrick and saying, you're with the NWO. And he openly accuses him of this. His uh, uh, Nick Patrick's attorney tries to stand up for him. Um, Teddy Long comes out again, who obviously we've we've seen the issues with Teddy Long and Nick Patrick and and, and so on. Uh, it doesn't really go anywhere. But my biggest takeaway from this was that when we saw the guy playing the attorney in a previous week, yeah. I thought he was quite good. Mm. I thought he, he you know, I wouldn't say wrestling promo because that's not what he's doing, but I thought he came across quite well. He was well spoken. He he made his points. He was even he was even semi funny in certain moments. But here, I didn't think he was anywhere near as good. I thought he was pretty fucking awful, to be honest. <laughs> My thoughts exactly, so I mean, he he didn't have it this week. Um, he just basically came out and said when Chris Jericho was. Um, getting involved he was like oh your father was a um uh nhl player and um he just... well, a goon he called him a goon didn't he yeah yeah and uh because of his uh, reputation of uh fighting but then the, an interesting point happened where alan sharp the shyster he is um says uh Ted, brings up a story about teddy long being a referee in the 80s in in wcw nwa which is true but yeah. this story about him being suspended, I've, I don't know if it's true or not, but um, I'm very interested about that. The, there were things done in that way, and he ended up managing Doom as well, which might I'd have to go back and have a little look. Um, but it does ring a bell, but my memory is not the greatest, as people who ever listen to any of the other shows I'm involved in are fully aware. So cue my other co-hosts uh, smiling now as they hear this. But yeah, I'd have to go back and have a look. But um 
I just I just didn't get on board with the attorney this week whatsoever. It was almost it was almost cackling in an evil bad guy way. It was probably hamming it up, wasn't he? Yeah, as um, the great Mags would say, he over-egged the pudding this week, didn't he? <laughs> oh, totally, totally. Um, we get another recap, and it's this this time it's of all the Lex Luger, uh, Booker T, and Sting stuff from last week. They're a match that ended in a countout or no contest or whatever it was when Luger chased after Sting up the stairs and so on. And that then leads us to a rematch between Booker T and Lex Luger. And... Luger comes out second because we're going to talk about Sherry and Booker in a moment. Luger comes out. He's got the music playing, uh, the fireworks, the pyro. He flexes. He's fixed his bloody hair, thankfully. He's got it tied back so he doesn't look as rough as he did the previous week. And, you know, Luger always looks a million dollars. Of course he does. The guy's incredible. He's got incredible look, incredible physique. Sherry and Booker come out first, though. And we're still wearing the Harlem Heat gear, of course. So it's the, the tights and the top. But it's the black one with the red flames. Sherry is wearing a, a, a black top with black skirt and, and boots and so on. They looked incredible. And then when yeah. they're stood in the ring and you've got Sherry on the outside and you've got Booker and Luger facing off, I'm looking at this and I'm thinking, this feels big time. This, this feels important. Just because of how Sherry, Booker and Luger all look, the crowd are into it, the music is good. This feels big time. Now, you put that in comparison to earlier on in the show with the likes of Wall Street, with the likes of the, you know, the American males and, and all these sort of people. Yeah. It's, it's night and day to me. It's completely different. Yeah. Yeah. You said it best last week as well, Si. Um, Booker T in this incarnation, without silly Robert Parker, um, in a singles run, mini singles run here, it's just, it's brilliant stuff. Mm. Yeah, it is indeed. It is indeed. Um, we start off, uh, and Luger gets a, a, a delay vertical suplexing quite early. And you just put, I want to put this into context because obviously Luger is a massive guy. So sometimes when you have two massive guys in the ring, you lose how big both of them are because they're stood next to each other and you get the comparison there. But you put this into context, Booker T must be what? Six foot six, six foot seven. Yeah. yeah. And I think he's billed as like 260, 270 pounds. So, something in that region. He's a massive dude. And he's got those incredibly long legs as well. These famous for his scissor kicks and all that sort of stuff. And Luger picks him up and holds him there in this delayed vertical suplex for you know, not, not a mass. We're not talking British bulldog 30 seconds levels here, but it's long enough. I mean, that looked incredible. Really did, mate. And it got a massive pop as well when he um, hit the suplex. Yes, indeed. Indeed. Um, we then get a ad break. And when we come back, Booker T is in control. Um, we see some of the usual scissor kick efforts, which again, always look... In a way, it's quite... In a way, you can imagine people not taking that much of a notice to it because it's, it's a scissor kick and we see such spectacular moves nowadays and so on. But again, you come back to how big this guy is. And then you add to that the fact that Luger must be 6'5". You know, and Booker T, a man that size, is able to jump in the air and get his heel in Luger's face. I mean, that's an incredible feat of athleticism, isn't it? Oh, it really is, mate. And as you were saying earlier, this feels important. This is where I started to feel like it was important. When Sherry got involved, it was like... Yeah, these two are excellent as a pair because Sherry's managing skills have always been just 
a class even when yeah. she showed up um, drunk at that clash of the champions she's always been brilliant on camera and here it was like yes this is the sherry of old yeah without a doubt i've always been a big fan of sherry fantastic uh sadly though colonel parker arrives and just ruins the party because we're not allowed nice things and he ends up on the apron booker t kind of grabs him and there's a bit of a distraction and then luger picks up the win with a roll-up sting is watching the whole thing and then we come away from the ring that's kind of it isn't it really for the wrestling aspect of this episode of nitro danny it really is mate but i love that little ending where you see sting and he's looking on this is continuing the story and we're going to see where these two go in the future mm. yeah there we go uh what follows initially i was not on board with i thought this is a bit hammy a bit cheesy a bit daft because we have eric bischoff phoning into the show and speaking to tony Schiavone and the other commentary commentators there sorry uh, he's trying to talk to Piper and, and get Piper signed for the match against Hogan. At first, I was a bit like, oh, this this feels a bit cheesy, a bit off. But by the time this segment had finished, I sat there and I thought to myself, this, this is decent. I enjoyed that because it's something different. Yeah. And Bischoff sells it fantastically well in saying that Piper is really keen. Piper wants to get this done. So straight away, Piper doesn't lose any... Um, uh, any heat or any momentum or anything like that there because he's saying Piper is keen. He knows Piper is keen. But he's also then stalling on the fact Bischoff is his, because they, they obviously want to unveil it as some, as some big, you know, big, big deal and fanfare and so on when the match gets signed because they're billing it as like the biggest match of the decade and all this sort of stuff. So by delaying it, you can make Piper look weak or, or whatever. But they're saying Piper is keen, but his management team and his agents are making it difficult to figure out. And I thought, how clever is that? That was excellent. Um, put the heat on somebody else and mm. cause a um, sort of distraction to see. I mean, like we said it on um, Twitter the other day, the search for Roddy Piper continues. Now we have an excuse of like, oh, that's why he's not that's the hold up like it's not him just cowering away hiding from hulk hogan this is the reason he's not coming yet so i thought that was excellent yeah mm, all the great. yeah really good really good um bischoff says he's going to speak to piper more directly in the week didn't he and he says if he can speak to piper he thinks he can get it done without the agents in the way muddying the water so Again, just really good stuff from Bischoff here. I think even though all you're doing is hearing his voice, I think Bischoff plays his role perfectly here. He really does, mate, because there's always been that story out there of how Eric Bischoff went to um, Hulk Hogan's trailer and, and convinced him to, um, uh, I think he was either sign or turn heel or try to convince him in one of those attempts. So I think it was very logical of him to say, I'm going to Roddy Piper's um, next movie set in Toronto next week, which means we'll be Bischoff less again on that show. Um, yeah, and I thought shame, that man. was very, <laughs> it's very believable that he would do something like that. Yes, indeed. Indeed. And it adds that sense of realism as well. It's not a case of, Oh, Piper's turned up. They have ran their mouth and now they're going to have a match. It's like Piper wants to get it done, but he works in Hollywood. He does movies. Um, you've got to think about insurance and agents and management. And it adds, again, a little bit of 
reality-based, I suppose, aspects to things. And they get, you come, I, I know I've done it several times this week on Nitro Nights here, but you come back to the world of, say, boxing or MMA, it can take a long time to get fighters to sign and agree on a date and agree on when, it, when, where, um, how much, all the important questions. It, takes a, it, can, it can take an eternity with some of these fights to get arranged. So by doing this and talking of agents and management and Piper's other commitments to movies and so on, Again, it comes back to that little sprinkling of reality into this crazy world, doesn't it? Really does, mate. And yeah, that's an excellent point because if you look at, say, someone like Conor McGregor, um, who a fight will be announced and then um, a press conference will be up there and then another press conference and then it'll be off and then it'll be back on about six more times. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there you go. Oh, um, sadly, then we get a recap of Halloween Havoc showing all of the rambly bullshit nonsense that we saw on the pay-per-view. We saw the, the nitro after the pay-per-view and they're making us watch it a third time. I don't think it was necessary to sit through all of that again, but there we go. No. Uh, before the champ arrives, that iconic NWO music hits. Uh, the giant is there. Vincent is there. DiBiase is there. And Hogan comes strutting out, cocky as anything, dancing away. And I just sat there and I thought, I, I, well, I turned to the wife and I said, I fucking love heel Hulk Hogan in this era. He's just such a bastard. It was excellent. Um, he knows exactly what he's doing. He's hamming it up. Um, even though fans are loving him, it's so refreshing to actually see him coming out. And if you mm. go back to some of our earlier shows, Ty, where we've just groaned every time Hulk Hogan came out. Mm, yeah this is it yeah complete change isn't it um hogan talks of the cable ace awards which is like a a tv based um, awards ceremony evening like we get them over here with with the soap awards is one aspect there's various others i think the emmy is a tv awards as well and all that sort of stuff and he's saying that he hasn't had his invite yet but he knows he'll be winning awards because he should be and then he starts talking about Ted Turner and saying, I know Turner will be there. He'll probably win an award. If I don't get an invite, I'll just turn up anyway and take his. So again, I, I quite enjoyed this as well, because it's throwing Ted Turner's name into the show and a, a little bit of realism to it again, I suppose. Hogan then says that he was, he put on the performance of a lifetime at Halloween Havoc, acting scared in front of Piper and desperately trying to get him to, you know, agree to a match but Piper doesn't look interested. And again, it's just such slimy shit by Hogan. It's brilliant. Yeah. And we, we haven't even mentioned the fact that when Hollow Hogan comes out, he demands that the lights are dimmed as well. And <laughs> yeah. I think that's excellent. Um, so all the attention is on him and Trilly and their Ted. Yeah. It's so good. He's just, I mean, don't get me wrong. I, Last week, I was critical of Hogan coming out, cutting a promo, and then posing to end the show. It's basically what we get here. And I, I don't think it needs to... Cl- Hogan's the big deal. He's the champ. And, you know, and he's Hulk Hogan, for crying out loud. So I appreciate that they may look at it as he's the biggest thing they've got at the moment. Get him on last. He's your main event of the evening. A spot with Hogan. But I, I, I don't know if it's me being old-fashioned or... Um, narrow-minded maybe i don't know but i like my wrestling show to finish with a wrestling match that's my main event yeah but 
backwards, but whatever. And it, we do then have that Hogan posing and so on again, and that's kind of where the show goes off air, Danny, isn't it? It really is, mate. But would you have swapped the Lex Luger Booker T match and the this Hulk Hogan um, segment uh, around to end the show? Um. Mm, I'm going to contradict myself now and say probably not. Was that because of the finish? Yeah. Yeah. No, I totally get you. I totally yeah. Get you. Um, I think last week Hogan didn't need to finish the show. They could have done something different. This week, because they've had the whole stuff with Piper talking, uh, sorry, uh, Bishop talking with Piper and then Bishop talking, I can kind of understand why they did it. And it didn't seem to go on as long this week either. He, he came to the ring, he spoke about Ted Turner. And then did his posing and it finished. So it was better this week than last. I don't, yeah, I, I suppose I do contradict myself a little bit there, but you're right, Danny. Yeah. 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 Okay. So, as always, the best way for us to review and summarize this episode of Nitro here is to give our plus points, our negatives, our overall review uh, in our woos and our oh brothers, Danny. Brother, 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 brothers, brother, Woo! brother. First or second, my friend? I'll go second this week, sir. Okie doke. Uh, I will give you my O brother first because I like to try and finish on something positive. Uh, my O brother this week was very nearly the attorney because he stank the place out. I'd, I'd quite happily not see him on my television again, but I don't think this is going to be the last time. But he just gets beaten out for the O brother this week. Because we had to watch that fucking Halloween Havoc recap again. Now, <laughs> I appreciate it's a big moment. Piper walking out, Hogan sells it fantastically, and so on. And then it completely loses its way and rambly, rambly, rambly. But if you're going to show it, and I fully appreciate why WCW were going to show it, edit the fucking thing. Make it watchable. You've had, what, a week and a half? Yeah, people, you literally are you're literally part of a TV media company. I'm sure there's some bugger sat somewhere in an office who can do that for you. Just edit it. Yeah, do the best bits in and leave the rest out. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Uh, what's your brother, Danny? It has to be Michael Wall Street because it's the only time that I've really made a audible groan when I heard the music. I was like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> that's mine, mate. Fair enough. Uh, my woo this week would be not necessarily the finish or the in-ring action, but Lex Luger versus Booker T. Just how they looked fantastic, how big time it felt, how Sherry was superb. I got so much enjoyment out of that short little period of what was on my screen in comparison to so much what else was on the show. That has to be my woo. What about you, Danny? For me, it has to be Sting all night. Oh, yes. Um, the random appearances, the him watching Jeff Jarrett, him watching uh, Lex Luger, just walking around. Um, yeah, it would have to be Sting all night. That's my roommate. Fair enough. Fair enough. Overall, then, hit miss or mid limb? What are you thinking? I'm going middle with this one, so I mean, there was nothing too atrocious. I think this week was a lot better than last week. So, yeah, mine would be middle. How about you, mate? Yeah, totally agree. Better than last week, but still feels. It still feels like they're treading water a little bit at the moment. Yeah. Um, we've had what happened at Halloween Havoc. We know we've got a couple of weeks before we hit World War Three. So 
I, it kind of feels like they that they're treading water before they really sort of put their foot down and, and head into the next pay-per-view. Nothing terrible on the show, really, but then nothing brilliant either. So, yeah, a middle's fair enough. Yeah. Okie doke. So that's this week's Nitro looked at. We will be back, of course, with you via SJP World Media looking at next week's Nitro, as always, every single Thursday via SJP World Media. But before we get there, Danny, do you want to let everyone know whereabouts they can find you and all the other brilliant shows you're involved in, please? Yep, you can find me on Twitter at Scottish Juggalo. You can hear me on One Mad Meat Podcast with the great Chris Bellis. You can hear me on Back When with the great Ty Peters. And you can hear me here next week where we'll be finding out what Eric Bischoff um, has said to Roddy Piper with the great side Powell next week on Nitro Nights. <laughs> Uh, anything I'm involved in you can find as always via the network that carries this show that's at SJP World Media on Facebook Twitter and everywhere else pretty much Um, make sure you're giving it all a like a follow and a subscribe on the podcast players platforms and providers whether that's Apple iTunes Spotify Google, I think Stitcher's going to the wall now, isn't it? But we're still on there as well Um, Podcast Republic, Podcast you, you mention it, we're on it all brilliant podcast platforms and some crappy ones too. You'll be able to find SJP World Media. And of course, Nitro Nights, which you can find and follow on Facebook and Twitter at Nitro underscore Nights. Danny, I have had an absolute blast talking with you again, my friend. Um, a little peek behind the curtain for everyone listening. And we're not going to tell you, so don't ask. Don't tweet us because it's going to be a little while yet. But me and Danny are actually talking about another project that might be running alongside this one. Oh, there you go. Little uh, little taster for you there. Little treat, eh? Danny, I'll speak to you next week, my friend. Take care, mate. And to everyone else, as always, thank you for listening.